0: Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Church. A couple of quick updates here before we jump right into it. Uh, a couple of you have asked even right now like a few minutes ago while I was walking in here and I'm sure there's others that are wondering you know when are you heading out pastor when are you leaving. Uh, so I'll just kind of get that out of the way here. So Wednesday we have a moving company coming. They're going to take all of our stuff and drive away with it, um, leaving us with an empty house, and then Thursday or Friday, I'm taking half the kids and driving to Pennsylvania to meet the moving company there, and then probably about Sunday, Janice is going to take the other half the kids and meet us there as well. Uh, The reason for the separation like that is because the sale of our house fell through. Uh, The the people that were going to buy it, couldn't get a mortgage, and there are some issues on there, and so uh, we put it back up for market. Everyone, anyone's looking for a house, I mean, now's the time to buy it, is what I'm, what I'm hearing, um, but if you could be praying for us for that, that'd be great just to kind of get that out of the way, and uh, we've got an open house a week from today to hopefully uh, lock things up and, and move on, but um, also want to give you a brief update, too, from the pulpit here. Next week, Pastor Garrett will be preaching. And then the week, yeah, hey, you could, you could be excited about that. Can't wait to hear it. It's going to be great. And then the week after, uh, Dr. Tim Miller is going to be coming. And he is, I announced last week, he is your new interim preacher. And again, I made a distinction between preacher and pastor. He's, he's got a full-time job. He's a professor of New Testament at Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary. And great guy, he's a friend of mine, Uh, Austin North knows him very well too, Austin's one of his students, Uh, but just a great guy, great preacher, and I think you're really going to be blessed by him. So he's going to preach about three times a month or so uh, for the foreseeable future while your leaders are uh, organizing a search committee and trying to look for a more permanent uh, pastor. But he is going to be your interim preacher And uh, that means he's gonna really be here Sunday, not necessarily all the other days of the week because he does have a full-time job elsewhere. So that is what is to come, and I hope that you're uh, excited about that. I thought for a long time uh, what exactly to preach in my final sermon here to my friends in Michigan. Um, I am so grateful for the opportunity to get to preach to you one last time. It was a privilege I feared had passed a number of months ago. Uh, But I really am just honored and privileged to to be able to to share the Word of God with you. I thought about preaching again in Isaiah, um, but I I believe the Lord, as I sought the Lord, as I prayed about this, I believe the Lord has led me to a different direction. So this morning, take your Bibles and open to Revelation chapter 2. Book of Revelation, last book of the Bible, chapter 2. As you know... I intended to do a topical Wednesday night study on the end times at one point. And that was supposed to be followed by an expository study in the book of Revelation going right through that whole book. And as I thought about what the Lord would have me preach this Sunday, one text kept on coming to mind over and over again that I did not have the chance to speak about before. But it's a text that I think you will find quite relevant for your situation. Challenging? Certainly but hopefully encouraging and helpful at the same time. Let's take a moment and pray, and then we'll take a look at Revelation 2. Father, I ask that you would bless this time together. I know it's warm in here, Lord, but I pray that you would help our hearts and our minds to be focused now on you. And may you get the glory for all of this. Challenge us, move your spirit within us, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now the last few weeks I preached, we focused on healthy churches. Healthy churches exist for what? The glory of God, right? Healthy churches exist for the glory of God. They exalt God, their redeemer. They edify one another, the redeemed. And they evangelize the lost, the unredeemed. So exalt, edify, evangelize. We saw those three components. Healthy churches exalt, edify, and evangelize. Today, what we're going to do is we're going to attempt to bring all of that together and ask the question now what? Now what? What if we have a healthy church built on those foundations? What if we have a church founded in the proper way, firmly rooted in the word of God, with a healthy understanding of biblical church leadership, proper perspective oriented towards Christ, a a culture of discipleship and ministry, an outward culture of evangelism and missions? What if we have all of that? What then? What happens next? There was a church like that in the New Testament, a church called Ephesus. Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20 Chronicle the founding of the church of Ephesus Paul the Apostle Paul during his second missionary journey had a short stop at the city of Ephesus he preached briefly in the synagogue they asked him to stay longer but Paul declined and he said I will return to you if God wills well God certainly did will a man named Apollos began preaching after Paul and then later Paul on his third missionary journey rejoined that area he began preaching in the synagogue for three months he preached He preached until some, the text says, became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the believers in the congregation. And because of that, Paul left. That's when he left, when the persecution by people who knew better became so detrimental to the ministry that it was not worth staying any longer. Paul spent the next few years building up that church. He taught them, it says in the Bible, the whole counsel of God, He helped them to develop a leadership group of elders, also called overseers or pastors, a plurality of elders. He warned them of wolves that would arise within the congregation, people who looked like Christians, who would choose tradition over scripture, who would seek their own selfish gain instead of the gain of others and the the cause of Christ. And after warning them of all that, Paul departed from the Ephesians with great many tears and weeping and a pizza party. It was a beautiful a beautiful relationship. And Ephesus became one of the strongest, most influential churches in the New Testament. The church was later pastored by notable leaders like the Apostle John and Paul's disciple Timothy later on. The letter of the Ephesians was written to that church. It speaks of a church that is rich in love and faithfulness and unity. So the Ephesians had a biblical foundation. They had a rich history. It was easily one of the most influential, most stable, most important churches of the first century AD. So they had a biblical foundation, they had a rich history, and that brings us to the pages of the book of Revelation. Revelation was the last book that was written in the New Testament. By the time it was written, the apostle John was the only apostle left alive. Everyone else was murdered. He was writing from exile on a prison island called Patmos. And during his time in exile, the Lord gives him this great vision of things that are to come. Revelation 2 and chapter 3 are things that are a message to the churches of that time. More specifically, a message to the churches not just of that time, but to us as well. Chapters 2 and 3 give seven short messages to seven churches in Asia Minor at the time of John's writing. Now today we're going to look at one of those messages, the one to the church of Ephesus. Before we begin reading it, I think it's important to tell you what this message is not. Why is this message relevant to us in the 21st century and not just relevant to people in the 1st century? There are several notable end times experts, Christians, theologians, that popularize this idea that the churches in Revelation represent different time periods of church history starting at the time of Christ and going all the way to the time of the return of Christ. For instance, uh, Tim LaHaye, one of the authors of the popular Left Behind series, he believes that Ephesus represents the Apostolic Church from about 30 A.D. to 100 A.D. And he believes that the next church, Smyrna, represents the Persecuted Church from about 100 A.D. to 300 A.D. And so on, all the way to Laodicea, the seventh church, who is the apostate church, which is the church of today. And that's become a very popular view among evangelicals on the churches of Revelation. And after all, why would God choose these seven churches out of the hundreds or even a thousand churches that were in existence at that time? Now, I think that that view, that each church represents a different time period, suffers from a few insurmountable problems. The three biggest problems, I think, that that view suffers from is, first of all, it's a terribly American view of the text. It's an American view, and here's what I mean by that. Would the present-day church in China, the persecuted underground church, relate more to Laodicea or to perhaps the persecuted church of Smyrna? You see what I mean? So from an American perspective, yeah, maybe we feel like the lukewarm church, but that's not necessarily the case when you go outside of this country. Second, I think it's a view that ignores what we call the imminence of Christ. Jesus could return at any moment. The apostles believed Jesus could possibly return within their own lifetime. Now, if the church had to go through seven periods of church history before Jesus could return, that destroys the idea of the imminence of Christ. But third and finally, most troubling, is that this view lacks any clear indication in Scripture that that's how we should read this text. In other words, there's nothing at all in the text that gives any indication that we are to interpret this as seven stages of church history. It's an interpretation that is read into the text rather than read out of the text. That's why I think it's better to understand these seven churches as representative of churches throughout all of history. These churches had issues and had great things going on in them and had problems that are common to churches of all times. Ours included, the apostles' time, and everything in between. In other words, these seven churches, they weren't the biggest of the time, they weren't the most influential of their time, but their message stays relevant because they were selected due to the spiritual issues that they wrestled with. Those were issues that would be relevant throughout all time until the return of Christ, whenever that might be. Now, each of these letters have elements in common. They begin with a description of Christ that's pulled right from Revelation chapter one. Most of them have some sort of a praise and some sort of a condemnation. What is the church doing well? What is the church not doing so well? It's followed by a word of encouragement and a word of discipline if they don't repent. And then all of them end with an invitation to the reader to respond, to apply the message and a promise to the overcomer, to the Christian. Now, as I thought about these seven churches, I, I know that in each church there's something relevant to you, to this particular congregation. But the church of Ephesus really rose to the surface in my mind. It was a church that had a rich theological history. It was founded upon healthy biblical leadership. A church that had been through trials of false teachers. A church that began with great love and fellowship and faith. But the message that we hear in Revelation shows us that that church didn't always stay like that. Listen to Revelation starting in chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write. We'll pause there just for a minute. This is how each of those seven letters begins. Just like everything in Revelation, there is a debate regarding what does this mean? Why would Jesus send a message to an angel? The Greek word for angel is angelos. Angelos, we don't translate it into English, we actually transliterate it which means we just bring the sounds of it over into our language. The actual meaning of Angelos is messenger. It could be talking to the messenger of the church of Ephesus, which some people think refers to the head pastor. It would be a weird word for a lead pastor, but it's not unheard of to use that kind of language for a church leader. But in the book of Revelation, everywhere outside of these two chapters, that word angelos refers to actual angels. And there is some evidence in the New Testament and the Old Testament that angels preside over localities or places, even churches. So we can't rule out the idea that this is addressed to an angel with the church itself in mind behind that angel. But we're not going to get caught up in that debate today. The more important thing is what does this message actually say? So listen again to verse 1, the whole thing this time. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This is a description of Jesus Christ. It's drawn from imagery in Revelation chapter 1. John is in the spirit on the Lord's day when Jesus shows up. And he looks back, if you look back at verse 12, skip back to chapter 1, verse 12, you see it says there, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Then skip down to verse 16, it says, in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. And then just a few verses later, Jesus himself explains some of this imagery. Look at verse 20. He says, As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the picture here is a picture of Jesus holding seven stars, or the seven angels, in his right hand, and he's walking among these seven lampstands or the seven churches as he's doing it. Even if these angels are literal angels, they are there to guard and to guide and to represent the churches and their leadership. So this is a very comforting image of Christ. Jesus is described as holding these church leaders in his hand, and and he is here among us, walking among his churches. He is ever-present in the church, even churches, that as we read have serious problems. Isn't that a comfort? This is a good image to keep in mind. I don't hold this church in my right hand. Pastor Garrett does not hold this church in his right hand. Your church leaders do not hold this church in their right hands. This is the church of Jesus Christ. It is his church. It's in his protection. And he continues walking among it in his sovereignty. He can decide to protect it or to let it go. It's all up to him. This is Jesus's church, not yours, not mine. Jesus goes on to tell this church what they're doing well. Look at verses two and three. He says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, And you have not grown weary. You're beginning to understand why I thought this message has particular relevance for you. Jesus says, I know your works. The Ephesians had a reputation for good works, for for gospel work. They were morally upright in an immoral pagan society. The area of Ephesus was known for its sinful idolatry. In Ephesus, there was the temple of Diana, or Artemis sometimes it's called. One of the seven ancient wonders of the world. It was 100,000 square feet big. It had 120 marble columns all throughout it. It was an architectural wonder, and yet it was devoted to worship of a false god. Yet the influence of the believers in Ephesus was so powerful that 262 AD, that whole entire building burned down, And when that temple was burned, the city decided, I'm not even gonna rebuild it. Ephesus became a Christian city. Isn't that cool? The Ephesians were known for godliness even in the midst of a pagan culture. Jesus says to them, I know your works. He says, I know your toil and I know your perseverance. That tells me that there were problems in that culture against them. The Ephesians were known for persevering in the midst of trials. They were known for their labor in Christ. They worked hard to advance the cause of the kingdom of Christ. They labored to send out missionaries. They toiled in godliness. They were patient through all of it. You know, the true test of your Christianity is not during times of ease and comfort. The true test of your Christianity is during those times of trial. During that time of persecution, your works are tested in the trials of fire. My family and I like to watch a show on the History Channel called Alone. I don't know if you've seen this show. They put 10 people in the wilderness. They're all separated from each other. They don't know who's left and who's not. And they get a limited amount of supplies and they have to just survive on their own. They could tap out, they could quit anytime they want. But the last person standing wins half a million dollars. 10 people all alone. Every contestant that comes on that show has a survivalist background of some sort. They teach survivor skills. They hunt for a living. They're trained in wilderness survival, but they don't know their abilities until they test themselves. They don't know truly who they are until they go out and they find out what they're capable of during that trial. They don't know their own willpower until it's tested. It's the same with churches and it's the same with believers. When you go through a trial, be it a sickness, be it it the trial of a, a... broken church, be it a financial difficulty, be it the trials of a, a floundering country, whatever it might be, those trials don't just mature you, they reveal you. They show you to be who you truly are. They reveal your character. They, they reveal whether you truly know Christ or not. The Ephesians were known for their works, for their toil, for their perseverance, Jesus says, I know how you can't bear with those who are evil, but you have tested those who have called themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. In every church, no matter where you go, you are going to find a mixture of people. You're going to find that there are genuine believers, genuine professing believers who say they know Christ and they do. You're going to find that there are professing believers who don't actually know Christ. People who say that they're Christians, but they're not truly believers. And you'll find that there's probably people that come that are seeking, or they're just coming because mom and dad make them come, or because that's just what they do. They don't actually profess to be Christians, but they're there for one reason or the other. Every church has a mix of those people. Professing believers, professing believers that aren't really believers, and people who just say they're not believers. How do you figure out who's who? Remember, decades before Jesus said these words in Revelation 2, the Apostle Paul stood before these Ephesians, the elders of the church, in Acts chapter 20, and he said, there are going to be wolves that rise up from where? From within, he says, from among you of the church. And here we find out the Ephesians heeded the warnings of Paul and tested those wolves and didn't bear with their evil. Now, now how do we test people like this? What test is there to determine if someone's truly a believer or not? Jesus doesn't get specific here, but other passages in Scripture fill in some of those gaps for us. Paul says in Ephesians 2 that believers, true believers, are no longer dead in their sins. They are godly in their lifestyle. He says in Galatians 5 that they're characterized by fruits of the Spirit like patience and joy and love. 1 Corinthians 2 tells us true believers discern the Word properly. They understand the Word of God because they have the Spirit of God working within them. 1 John 1 tells us true believers recognize their own sinfulness. 1 John also tells us true believers confess Christ. They know the gospel. On the other side of the coin, the Bible gives many indications of what a false teacher or a wolf looks like, a false believer. 1 Thessalonians 2 tells us that false teachers are man-pleasers. They're more concerned with numbers among them or, or getting money among them than they are with doing what is actually right. 2 Corinthians 10 tells us false teachers are critical of God's true teachers. 2 Timothy, Timothy 4 tells us false teachers will tickle the ears and teach tradition rather than God's word. To put it in more modern language, they obsess over ritual and tradition and constitution perhaps rather than the word of God. 1 Timothy 6 tells us false teachers obsess over inconsequential details rather than the important matters of scripture. They're experts at diverting attention from what is really important. 2 Peter 2 tells us false teachers are greedy for their own gain and they exploit people. The bottom line is the only way to test a false teacher or a false believer is to observe their lifestyle. Watch them. Observe their actions, listen to their words, and filter everything they say and do through the absolute truth of the word of God. The Ephesians were good at that. They held fast to God's word. They did not allow ungodly people to gain positions of leadership and influence over others. In verse three, Jesus says, I'll read it again here. I know you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. Notice what's different between that verse and verse two. There's some similarities there. Notice what's different. He adds that phrase, for my name's sake, for the glory of God. You see, when a church perseveres through trials, when a church concerns itself with moral and doctrinal purity, when a, when a church is known for godliness and keeping wolves out, that is for the glory of God. God is magnified among you. So church, don't grow weary in these things. Don't stop doing what is good. Don't stop ridding yourselves of evil influence. It's easy to grow tired in doing good because good takes more energy and is more difficult than doing evil. Starting a new church can wear you out. Am I right, leaders, who've been doing this for a couple weeks now? It can wear you out. It can be physically and emotionally and mentally and spiritually exhausting. There are new personalities to deal with. There are conflicting ideas of what is best. There's uncertainty of the unknown, the what-ifs. But don't stop doing what is right. And don't stop looking to the Word of God above all in all of those things. God desires for you to persevere through the trials of right now. It matures you, it reveals you, and it brings Him glory. Think about the words in these verses. All these different synonyms that are piling up here. God praises them for their toil, for their patient endurance for their enduring patiently, for their bearing up. These are words that indicate that godly Christian living takes time, it takes energy, and that can be seriously exhausting. But church, it is worth it because it is for the glory of God. It is for the glory of God. So that's the positive. This is what the Ephesians were doing well. But now we go to the other side of it. Look at verse four. This is the negative. Jesus says, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. How can it be that a church that was so well-known for its works, well-known for its perseverance, for its aggressive pursuit of purity, how can it be that a church like that has diminished in love. How can it be that a church founded by the Apostle Paul, a church with such a rich history, can slip so far from where she first began? This is an ever-present danger for churches. And ironically enough, perhaps it's even especially a danger for churches with a deep and rich history of good works and doctrinal and moral purity. It is all too easy to forget what we are supposed to be doing here in life. What began as this really great ministry takes a life of its own and and just becomes something that we do because we've always done it and, and we have to keep doing it, otherwise we won't keep doing it. And the love that used to be there is no longer there, but we're still doing it because, well, we've always done it, right? It is all too easy to stop loving and to start letting even good things distract us from the main purpose of church and life. This doesn't just happen in churches, this happens in in marriages too, doesn't it? You start off with this passion, this love for one another, and yet the more it goes on, the easier it becomes to kind of just put things on autopilot and, and coast. You forget that love that you once showed each other. Now it becomes all about getting the kids from one place to the next and getting those bills paid and and getting getting that retirement all settled and, and you forget how all of this began in the first place. A relationship of love. That happens in many churches. Churches, once known for their love, become empty places devoid of life and meaning that just exist to continue to exist. Places that do what they've always done just because they've always done them. This is why this message is so relevant for you right now. You are in the honeymoon stage of this church. You just started. This place is bursting with love and joy and fellowship and great things. You don't have any sacred cows yet that you worship. You are known for your patient endurance. You have borne up through trials for the sake of Christ. Church, don't lose your first love. Don't forget why you're here. Don't forget why you are a Christian. Don't forget that the Bible is not just something to read and study and to know about, but this is a love story between God and his people. Jesus loves you, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's what this is about. Lost love is often a result of difficult trials. This church had seen a lot. They'd been through a lot. And because of it, perhaps, they'd started to slip away from where they once were. Don't allow that to happen here. Pastor Aaron and Pastor Garrett, don't lose your love for ministry. You have been through a lot together. We have been through a lot together. You are gifted and passionate men that love the Lord, that love the church, that love your families, and that love the people here and elsewhere. Don't lose that love for ministry. And and I've gotta say the same for the leaders here too. For leaders that are right now functioning as leaders and leaders that are not functioning as leaders right now. This is difficult. Starting a new church is not easy. Going through what we've gone through is not easy. It's easy though to let those trials and those difficulties make you forget why you're doing what you're doing. Don't forget that first love. You are gifted. You are passionate. God is using you even now. It's interesting to me that Jesus here doesn't specify what love he's talking about. He just says you've lost your first love, period. Is it love for God? Is it love for believers? Is it love for the world? Perhaps maybe a little bit of all the above. They've lost their first love. What was once this beautiful marriage relationship between Christ and his church, within his church, between his church and others, is now decayed. So what is the church of Ephesus to do? What's the remedy for this kind of loss? Look at the next verse. Verse 5. Jesus says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. Now pause there, halfway through the verse. Three imperatives here, three commands. It's a great three-step remedy for recovering lost love. In fact, when when I do premarital counseling, I always go to this passage at some point during that counseling, and I tell the couple, you might might not need this now. You're still in your honeymoon stage now. But seven years from now, 15 years from now, 25 years down the road, pull this out and take a look at it again. How do you recover long-lost love? Step one, Jesus says, remember from where you have fallen. Remember, think back about what it was that you used to do when your relationship with God was at its best. This is good for marriage too. You might remember back to your first year or two. You used to go on dates every Friday night. You used to cuddle on the couch instead of just sitting there and each of you looking at your phone separately with the TV on in the background. You used to go on vacation for your anniversary. You used to take walks after dinner. Remember those things that characterize your love together at the height of that relationship. Look back maybe through some old photo albums or Facebook timeline or whatever. Read through some of your old love letters together. Refresh your memory. It's a healthy exercise to do that as a church too, even for a ministry. What was happening in youth group when it was bursting with 80 teenagers? What was children's ministry doing when it was most effective? What did the church look like when it was a joyful place, filled with fellowship and love and energy? Now I know that culture changes and people change and there's a lot of factors involved, but sometimes just remembering can stir up what needs to be fixed. It can stir up what needs to be started again. It can stir up whatever element has faded out that needs to be replaced. So step one is remember. Step two, he says, repent. Repent. That means you turn 180 degrees and go the other way. Stop doing what you are doing and start doing what you should be doing. Notice how those first two commands are connected. First, you remember. You remember sometimes that that brings to mind the differences that are there that shouldn't be there. You remember what you were doing that was good that you're not doing anymore. You remember and think about the things that maybe you are doing now that you shouldn't be doing and then you repent. You stop doing those things that aren't good. You start doing the things that are beneficial for your life. Maybe you feel like you've kind of slipped in your relationship with God lately. Think back to your lifestyle when you were at the height of your relationship with God. Is there something you were doing then that you're not doing now? Is there something you're doing now that you need to get rid of that you weren't doing then? Remember, and repent. Church ministries should do the same thing. Perhaps the ministry leaders have allowed it to become something it never intended to be. You've forgotten the purpose of glorifying God, of edifying others, of evangelizing the lost. Remember, repent. And step three, Jesus says do the works you did at first. While remembering, it's likely that you recall things that you once did but you've neglected now. Again, in marriage, You think back, we used to go on dates all the time. Maybe we need to start that up again. Get a babysitter for the kids. Go out again. In church, sometimes you gotta think about it and and just get refocused. Maybe certain ministries worked better in the past because they were more focused on their actual intent and it has over time slipped from where it used to be. Remember, repent. Do the things you did at first. A threefold recipe for recovering your love for Christ. Now, what happens if the church in Ephesus doesn't recover her love? Look at the end of verse 5. Last sentence in verse 5. Jesus says, If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. What a grave warning. Lack of repentance results in discipline, and that discipline sometimes is the removal of a lampstand, and as we saw, a lampstand in verse in chapter one represents the church itself. Jesus is threatening this church, I will remove you from being a church if you don't remember and repent and do the works you did at first. This is a sobering warning for any church. Ephesus had been around for many decades when this was written. It began as a healthy church. It was known for great leadership. It was known for its influence in the community. It was known for uh, being a bastion of theology and moral purity, and yet even great churches fall. And sometimes, if a church doesn't collectively repent of its sins, that fall is irreversible. God chooses to remove that church from the community rather than continuing to let it rot in sin. Now, I struggled to think how exactly I wanted to connect some of the dots here and apply this. You're an intelligent bunch. You'll draw your own conclusions in some regard. But as difficult as it is, I want to say this. As difficult as it is, rather than thinking of someone else, rather than thinking of another church, while you're reading this, think about us here. Think about yourself when you continue in stubborn, rebellious sin for an extended period of time, when you lose your love for Christ, the consequences are severe. God does not promise to keep this church alive indefinitely. This local church. The church universal, that's another story, that, the church universal will not be overcome by the, the gates of hell itself. But sometimes God chooses to remove the influence and ministry of a local church because they have lost sight of what's really important. They have strayed from the word of God. They forgot that this is about glorifying God. It's about discipling believers. It's about evangelizing the lost. So church, keep the fire of this church alive. Don't lose this first love. When you sin, repent. Don't blame others. Don't make excuses. Don't try to cover it up. Confess and repent. And in that way, perhaps the Lord will keep this lampstand lit and burning brightly for many decades to come until he returns. That's the prayer. Now, before closing out his message to the Ephesians, Jesus has one more positive thing to say. He says this in verse 6. He says, Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You hate their works. Now, once again in Revelation, we, you know, there's a, a, a debate over exactly who this group of people is and even how to pronounce it. Nicolaitans, Nicolaitans, I'll say Nicolaitans. It's easier for me to pronounce. They're mentioned here in Jesus' message, not just here, but also in the church of Pergamum a few verses later. The Greek word Nicolaitans comes from a compound, a Greek word Nico, to conquer or to overthrow and the word laos, people, the conquering people. But that doesn't necessarily help us too much. Who are these people? What were they teaching? But down in verses 14 and 15, it associates them with Balaam. And it tells us that they introduced a lifestyle that disregarded God's teaching on sexuality and idol worship. They apparently believed that you could do whatever you wanted with your body. You can sin in whatever way you wanted physically, and that doesn't actually impact you spiritually. Isn't that ridiculous to think about? And yet think about where our culture is today. Just 10 years ago, things that were repulsive to the culture now are not just allowed, but they're encouraged. We live in this kind of culture. The Nicolaitans are around us at all times right now. The Ephesians rightly stood against that and rightly believed that what you do with your body has direct consequence with your relationship with God. They stood for moral purity in the midst of an immoral culture. And so should we. And Jesus at this point, verse 7, calls everyone to listen to this warning. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. How many of you have ears? I think all of you. I don't mean to offend if you don't. But this is kind of a, a, a metaphorical way of saying everyone listen up. All believers, no matter what church you go to, no matter if it's a church plant just a couple of weeks old, if it's a church that's been around for a hundred years, all churches in all areas pay attention to this warning. This is relevant for you. If you've got ears, listen up. Which means that we should stop and ask ourselves, have we lost our first love? Has our relationship with God fallen or slipped from where it used to be? We should ask ourselves Has our church lost its first love? And if so, what can we do to remedy it? And if not, how do we keep our focus where it ought to be? May this church always have a love for Christ, a love for believers, a love for the world around it. Jesus ends his message with this promise He says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise. Of God to the one who conquers. Some of your Bibles translate that to the overcomer. Who is the conqueror, or who is the overcomer? I think John's words in his first epistle are helpful here. First John 5, he writes, For everyone who has born who has been born of God overcomes or conquers the world. And this is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is it that conquers the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? overcomer or conqueror is John's shorthand for Christian for believer to all genuine believers we get the promise of eating from the tree of life isn't that cool? You remember the tree of life? Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 it was in the garden of Eden God allowed Adam and Eve to eat from any tree that they wanted to they just were restricted from one tree the tree of the knowledge of good and evil but they could eat from the tree of life if they wanted to But instead of eating from that one, the good one, they ate from the bad one. And God said, if you were to have eaten from the tree of life, you would have lived forever. You and I get to eat from that tree one day. We get to taste of the eternal fruit of God. I am sure that the pizza is going to taste good after the service today. But the fruit from that tree of life will taste far, far better. If you've ever wondered whether or not we get to eat in heaven, look no further than this verse. We get to eat from the tree of life. What have we seen here today, church? I preached this message this morning because I wanted to give you some encouragement to press on. Press on in your faith. Don't forget that this church must always love Christ, love each other, and love unbelievers, exalt, edify, evangelize the Lord desires great things from you I hope to hear of how this church continues to grow and make great inroads into this community and into the world one day I don't know when and I don't know if the Lord will have us meet up again one day I hope we can on this side of heaven but even if not remain faithful don't tolerate immorality don't tolerate false teachers endure patiently Bear up for the sake of Jesus' name. Don't grow weary in doing good. And if you find yourself slipping from that, remember, repent, and do the works that you did at first. Church, even if we never see each other again in this world, let's make it a point to meet up at the Tree of Life one day in eternity future and have a great reunion, enjoying not just pizza, but the fruit of eternal life together. How's that sound? Press on and love God. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for the impact of these people's lives on me and my family. I'm grateful for the time I was privileged to spend in ministry to them. And Lord, I pray that now you will help them to press on. Help them to endure patiently. Help them to not weary in doing what is good. Lord, I pray that they would never lose their first love. I ask God that you would help them to love you with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. That they would love one another by discipling one another and growing together in ministry. And Lord, that you would help them to share the gospel with the world, to evangelize the lost to send missionaries to the uttermost parts of this world until you return. Father, I pray that you would bless this church. I pray that you would put your grace and your mercy upon them. I pray that they would be a blessing to others outside of this this building here, these walls, these, these people right here sitting here. I pray that they would grow in love and faithfulness. I pray that they would mature. And I pray that through all of that, that you alone, God, would get the glory. To you be all glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.